0: Hi, I'm Jeff Watts, and I wanted to welcome you to the Renaissance Podcast. We are so excited that you have chosen to listen and join with us as we strive to reach the heart of our city with the truth and love of Jesus. And we know that God is doing amazing things in our community, and I am blown away at how many people have told me that Renaissance has provided a place for them to rediscover Jesus, it's given them a caring church family to be a part of, and has helped to transform their lives. If you're one of the men and women who have been encouraged, helped, and strengthened because of what's happening here at Renaissance, then I'd like to ask you to become an investor in what God is doing in our city. And here's one way that you can do that. Go to rendicatororg backslash give and make a commitment to be a part of showing the people of the city of Decatur the truth of Jesus and how much he loves them. Enjoy the podcast and thank you so much for being a part of this community. Good
1: morning. Welcome to Renaissance. My name's Joe. I'm one of the leaders here. We're really glad that you're here. Summer is also here. I put on a really nice sport coat this morning. And I don't mean to brag, but I looked really good. <laughs> and then I got over here and I'm like, I cannot wear this sport coat. I, I sweat if I peel an orange, it will be terrible. So I had to take the sport coat off. And now I look like I'm going to arrive at your house on a bicycle with a companion <laughs> to knock on your door. So that explains all of this. It was an ensemble. The weather changed that. Well, as the video said, today we are picking up our series called That One Thing, where Pastor Jeff has asked a few of us to answer the question. Out of everything you've learned about who God is, what is that one thing that you'd love to tell Renaissance? And I gotta be honest, this was not an easy question for me to answer. It, for Laramie, when it was her turn, and if you didn't get a chance to hear her message, you should listen to the podcast because it was incredible. But for Laramie, it was easy for her because her one thing is inside of her. For Todd, and if you didn't get to hear Todd's message, you should listen to the podcast. It was also incredible. It was easy for Todd because he lives that life, the thing that he talked about. And it was easy for them to come up with one thing because they're smarter than I am. But when it comes to me... I had a little bit more struggle figuring out what is that one thing, and to be honest, there are many things I would love to share, many things I've learned from studying and from interacting with people, people who follow Jesus, people who don't follow Jesus, many things that I've learned about who God is that I would love to share with you, and to be honest, I have also got Many soap boxes I would love to stand on and pontificate to you this morning and, and shoehorn my agenda. This is a perfect opportunity for me to do that, actually. And I probably would do that if it wasn't for this verse in the book of Hebrews in the Bible that says leaders in the church, pastors, will give an account for the things that they say. And I knew that if I'm going to if I'm going to use this as a platform for an agenda or just talk about something I want to talk about as a pastor here at Renaissance, I, I have to think about what my one thing is based on that. And so with much prayer, and much consideration, consulting with Pastor Jeff, I prayerfully considered what is that one thing that Jesus would want me as a pastor here at Renaissance to say to his church? And honestly, it's not easy for me to teach the Bible this way. Typically, what we do here is we study books of the Bible and we pick up this week where we left off last week that's usually what we do and and i typically get a schedule beforehand joe you'll be preaching from this chapter with these verses on this sunday and i don't have to pick i don't have to i don't have to pick a topic i don't have to pick verses from the bible it's laid out for me in the schedule that we use but today's different it's hard for me and i don't know how to teach the bible in a way that is topical where i just pick an idea and then put bible verses together so i'm going to do All I know how to do, and that's study the Bible with you all. So if you brought a Bible with you, will you open it up to 1 Kings chapter 17? That's where we'll be studying from. If you don't have a Bible with you, we'll put the words up on the screens. You can also look underneath the seat around you, and you'll find a hardback Bible. You can turn to page 299 in that Bible, and we'll get to 1 Kings. But before we jump in, I would love for us to pray together and ask that God would help us understand what He wants us to know, and that He would prevent me from using this as a platform for any agenda I have, and that we would only seek to know what the Holy Spirit's agenda is for us this morning. So, would you pray with me? Lord, we are so thankful that the Holy Spirit does have an agenda, and it's to make a big deal out of Jesus. Lord, I pray that we do that this morning. I pray that you would help us to understand more about who you are as we study. I pray that you would point things out to us that we didn't know before. I pray that as you're speaking to individuals in the room, that they'll know and understand and realize that it is, in fact, your Holy Spirit speaking to them, and that they'll be encouraged to obey you. We love you and thank you that you are always speaking to us, especially through the pages of the Bible. In Jesus' name, amen. The book of 1 Kings is was written in a, an interesting time in the nation of Israel's history. So if you're familiar with the Old Testament, which is the first half of the Bible, most of it is a telling and retelling of the history of this nation called Israel. And the period in which 1 Kings was written is an interesting period in Israel's history. It's what they refer to as the exile. And they call it the exile because in the early 6th century BC, a king from the city Babylon brought his armies to Jerusalem, surrounded it, conquered it, and carried captive thousands and thousands of the wealthiest, the elite, the intelligent people, the people who ruled the land. He carried them away from the city of Jerusalem to the city of Babylon. And while these Jewish people, while God's people were in this foreign land, they referred to that period of time as the exile. And while they're exiled here in Babylon, many of them had questions such as, does God still care about me? Does God even see me where I am? Does God know that I'm here? Why would God allow the king of Babylon to carry us away into this city? Many questions they had, many, many struggles they had with trusting God in the midst of their difficulty. And understanding that and knowing that that is when the book of 1 Kings was written, that those are the people to whom the book of 1 Kings was written, will help us better understand the story that we're going to look at today. And so if you have your Bible, we'll start in verse 1 of chapter 17. It says, Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. It's not gonna rain until I said so. Now, it mentions this man, Ahab. He's the king of Israel at the time. And 1 Kings chapter 16 says that he was more wicked than any king who ruled before him. If you haven't heard of Ahab, you've probably heard of his wife, Jezebel. We've all heard that name, right? This is, this is the husband of that woman, Jezebel. And they have a reputation, And it's been rightfully earned. You see, Ahab's wickedness extended into his rejection of the true God and worship of false gods, in particular, a God named Baal, whose primary mode of worship to him was the sacrifice of their firstborn children. And God hated that, and he detested the wickedness that occurred when people would worship Baal, and he forbid them from doing it, but this Ahab didn't care what God wanted, and he chose to worship Baal anyway. And so this man, Elijah, comes to him and says, it's not going to rain in this land until I say so. This Elijah becomes a popular figure all throughout Christianity and Judaism. His story, his life story, is mostly told in the book of 1 Kings and a little bit in the Chronicles. We don't get much of a story of where he comes from. This is actually the first time he's mentioned in the Bible. So we're told nothing about his birth, his childhood. We don't know anything about how old he is. Other than that, by the time Jesus came on the earth, he's so well respected that the Old Testament had been divided into two halves amongst the Jewish people. They considered there to be a part devoted to Moses and written by Moses, and then they called the rest of it Elijah, even though he's only in this little bitty part because he had such an influence on the way they thought, the way they worshiped God, and the way that they believed. By the time Jesus comes to earth and he's performing miracles, many people looked at Jesus and said, this must be Elijah come back from the dead. He was so well thought of in this time. And and this is his first instance of coming into the presence of the king and telling him, listen, God's upset with your wickedness. God God doesn't want you to rule the nation This way, And because he doesn't want you to rule it in this way, he's going to prove how upset he is by refusing to allow rain to fall on the ground. And it's not going to rain, King Ahab, until I say so. God then tells Elijah to get away from there because this is going to make King Ahab very angry. So he tells him to flee and he says, I want you to flee and I want you to go to this brook in the wilderness. And at this brook, there will be water and you'll drink from the brook and get water there. And verse four says, I've commanded the ravens there to feed you. Now, if you've grown up in the church, you've probably heard this as a Sunday school story that Elijah went into the wilderness and birds brought him food and God took care of him with the ravens. And it sounds like a really cute and fun story to tell children, but when I think of ravens, I think of Alfred Hitchcock. I don't think of a cute story of these birds happily coming along. It's not hummingbirds. It's not cardinals. These are ravens. Do you know what a flock of ravens is called? A conspiracy. (laughs) The other name for a flock of ravens is an unkindness. It's like God is saying to Elijah, I'm going to feed you in the wilderness with a conspiracy of unkindness. Sign me up for that. So he goes into the wilderness and he's fed by these ravens there. The interesting thing about ravens, for us, we think of Hitchcock and the movie The Birds and how how scary and creepy those birds are. But for him, Elijah would have had a set of guidelines given to him by God that he was to follow regarding dietary restrictions related to animals. There were animals that he, as a Jewish man, was allowed to eat. There were animals that he was forbidden from eating. The animals he could eat were called clean animals. The animals he was forbidden from eating were called unclean animals. Do you know where ravens fall into that? They're unclean. God says, I want you to go into the wilderness, Elijah, and I'm gonna feed you with unclean animals. Now, for us, that's a little bit difficult for us to wrap our minds around. Why would God say these animals are unclean? Don't eat them, don't touch them. And yet he says to Elijah, I'm gonna feed you. I'm gonna show you that I'm gonna take care of you by using something that is unclean. Well, when we understand that this was written to people in the exile, who are living in the midst of an unclean nation where there are unclean practices around them. Everywhere they go and they see this story about Elijah where God is taking care of him using unclean things. How encouraged would they have been to know that where they were in the midst of an unclean society, God was going to take care of them too, just as he'd taken care of Elijah. It goes on to say in verse six that these ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning. They brought him bread and meat in the evening and he drank from the brook. I can't help but think of Israel's history and I can only imagine that Elijah is thinking of that too. Knowing that his ancestors at one time were wandering through the desert for 40 years and they had nowhere to get food and they cried out to God for help and God caused bread to fall out of the sky. Laramie mentioned this last week. That God causes bread to fall from heaven and he feeds them miraculously in the wilderness. Every day, I can only imagine that Elijah is thinking of that as he's eating from the food that the ravens are bringing him. God's doing another miracle to take care of me. It says in verse 7 that after a while the brook dried up because there's no rain in the land. There's no where for him to get water to drink now because the brook is gone and the brook is not going to have water in it unless it rains. And do we remember why it's not raining? Verse one, Elijah said, it's not gonna rain King Ahab until I say so. Until I say so. Elijah is thirsty, alone in the wilderness and we could say that it's his own fault. (laughs) He has chosen to stop the rain. At any moment, he could say to King Ahab, I'm gonna pray to God and he's going to send rain and he will. And later on in his life, we see that very thing happen. He prays to God and God sends the rain onto the earth again. But for now, he's in the midst of the wilderness without any water, without any food. And it's all because he's stopped it from raining These people who are in exile who would have been reading this story about Elijah know the history of their nation that over and over and over again, God said to them, if you obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey me, people from another nation will come into your land and they'll take you from your home and they'll carry you away captive into a foreign land. And so they're reading here about how Elijah is in the wilderness without any water, without any food, and it's all his fault. And over and over and over again, those in the exile would have been thinking to themselves, we are here because it's our fault. And they would have wondered, will God even take care of us then? Because I've gotten myself into this mess? We'll go on to see this story that that though Elijah's here because it's his fault, that though the people were in exile because it was their fault, that God in his love and kindness towards us continues to care for them, continues to care for us. I wonder if some of us in the room are, are, are encountering something that we wonder, am I going through this because of choices I made? Is God punishing me for something that I've done wrong? Now, it could be that you made a bad decision and now you're in a mess and you need to clean up your mess. But it it could be that there's something happening to you that you have no control over and you wonder, is God punishing me? What have I done? And you're searching your life wondering, have I done anything? Does God even see where I am? Has he abandoned me to this thing? And we're gonna see through this story that he does not abandon us. He does not run away from us. He does not stop caring for and loving us at any moment. Verse 9, the Lord says to Elijah, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. This city, Sidon, is the home of Jezebel. In fact, her father is the king of Sidon. So not only has he fed Elijah with unclean animals, now he's telling him to go to an unclean city. And in this unclean city, I'm going to take care of you there. I'm going to feed you in this unclean city. And I've commanded a widow to feed you in this unclean city. That's a little bit ridiculous when we understand that in that day and age, Widows were the poorest of the poor. There was no way for a woman who had no husband to have any kind of sustenance, any kind of living. She had to rely on the kindness and charity of others. And so widows only had what was left over from what other people were willing to give her. And you can imagine how little she has in the midst of a drought, when there's no water, there's no food. And God says to Elijah, I'm gonna command a widow Someone who has nothing to take care of you in this unclean land. So he goes there, and when he gets there, in verse 10, it says, He came to the gate of the city, and there was a widow gathering sticks, just as God said there would be. And he called to her and said, Hey, can you bring me some water It's a little audacious of him in the midst of a drought to ask a widow for some water, but she agrees and she goes to get it for him. And verse 11, as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, will you bring me some bread too while you're at it? When I read this, it made me think of a friend of mine who told me a story about how one day he was at the gas station buying something to drink and a gentleman came in with a handful of change and tried to buy a Polar Pop. And he didn't have enough change to buy this Polar Pop. And so he left and my friend felt compassion for him and followed him outside and handed him a $5 bill and said, "Hey man, you should be able to go get something to drink. Here you go." And the man took the $5 bill and without saying thank you, said, "Do you have a cigarette I could have too?" It's yeah. exactly what I thought of when I read this about Elijah here. <laughs> "Hey, can you go get me some water?" "Sure." "Oh, will you bring me some food while you're at it?" He's coming up begging from this from this widow. And she said to him, verse 12, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked. I have nothing. Those three words jumped off the page at me. She says to him, I have nothing for you. What are you here asking me to give something to you? I only have a little bit of flour in a jug. I've got a little bit of oil in a jug and I'm gathering these sticks to make a fire and I'm going to take that flour and I'm going to take that oil and I'm going to make a little pancake and me and my son are going to eat that little pancake and we're going to die. I'm preparing our last meal right now and you're asking me to give you all I have? I have nothing to give you. And Elijah said to her in verse 13, do not fear. Don't be afraid. How can he say this to her? How can he say, do not fear? Because he had just seen God take care of him by feeding him with unclean birds. God said, I'm gonna take care of you. I'm gonna feed you in the wilderness. Then when he says to him, I'm gonna take care of you. I'm gonna feed you by this widow. When the widow says, I have nothing, it does not shake his faith and his understanding of who God is because he's certain that God can be trusted. And he says to her, because he knows God can be trusted, go and do as you've said, but first make me a little cake and bring it to me. And afterward, make something for yourself and for your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, the jar of flour will not be spent. The jug of oil will not be empty. You'll never run out until the Lord sends rain upon the earth again. During this drought, you're going to have as much food as you need Just do this one thing and show God that you have faith. Make me something first. Now us looking back, we can see that story and I feel some kind of way about Elijah pushing this widow to give to him before she feeds her family. But he has such an understanding that God can be trusted no matter what no matter what the widow doesn't have no matter what he doesn't have even if he has to depend on unclean birds god can be trusted and i i can't help but wonder if some of us in the room today are are wondering and asking ourselves can god really be trusted in this and you fill in the blank with what you are struggling with. I was talking to a friend this week who said that this is a friend who loves Jesus, believes in him, follows him, wants everything they do in their life to to bring honor to Jesus. But they said, there are areas of my life where I'm just not sure I can completely trust him with that. I'm afraid to let go of this and let him have it. And I can only imagine, because we're all human, that that many of us are encountering the same kind of questions. Does God care about me? Does God even see me where I'm at? Does God know what I'm going through? Can God take care of me in the midst of this? And I want to talk about a couple of those ways in which we might be doubting whether or not God can be trusted. And I'm only going to do a couple for time's sake. And I've chosen these two because these are things that, that I have experienced myself in, in, in distrusting who God is. And it's caused me some trouble in these areas. And then when I learned that he can be trusted, that I can in fact depend on him, it brought me so much freedom. And though there are many, many ways that we might encounter doubt and wonder if we can trust God. Just a couple that I want to talk about. The first one being, we can trust him, and I know we can trust him when we're scared. Elijah says to this widow in verse 13, do not fear, don't be afraid. You're afraid that if you give me some food first, you will have nothing left over. And circumstantially, that's very true. But Elijah's understanding of who God is said, God can be trusted when we're afraid, he can be trusted when we're scared. It's estimated that there are 40 million people in the United States struggling with some kind of anxiety and panic disorder. This is only those of us who, who struggle with anxiety and panic because of a chemical issue. This doesn't, doesn't count those of us who struggle with anxiety and panic because of circumstances, things that keep us up at night, tests that we are getting from the doctor, results from the doctor, uh, questions from our family. My, My children haven't called me in days. Maybe you're wondering about all of those things that could cause you panic and anxiety. That 40 million doesn't even count all of that. If we haven't been anxious or panicky about something, I would almost go so far as to say I can guarantee you know someone who has. You know someone who struggles with fear. There are there are many things in my life that I've been afraid of and from small things to big things, small things like heights, which is why you never see me on a ladder or become tall. I, <laughs> I, just, don't, I just don't like heights and, and, and this fear of heights has, has kept me from doing some things like climbing a ladder, like becoming tall, but it has also kept me from getting on an aircraft for for a long time. Now, now let's lay aside the the point that I haven't really had a necessity to get on an airplane and travel somewhere. And and because I haven't had a necessity to get on a plane and travel somewhere, I avoided it like the plague. I wasn't gonna get on it if I didn't have to. But a couple weeks ago, I had to get to Seattle in a matter of hours to be on time for a conference. And so I got on an airplane for the first time in my life. And I know that's very weird and very strange that someone my age would not be on an airplane yet. But I can tell you that my anxiety for that plane ride was great. Now, I I preached here at church the day before I got on that plane. And typically when I'm preaching, I have a little bit of underlying anxiety going on, a little bit of nervousness. You could even say maybe it's worry or fear. And I wonder things like this, am I gonna say something stupid because that has happened? (laughs) Am I gonna say something confusing? because that's happened. Am I gonna say something that's not true? That's probably happened. Am I gonna say something that's hurtful to someone? That has happened. And so I wonder about these things and I feel a little bit anxious about it. But the day before I got on an airplane, I felt incredible about preaching because I knew it was my last day on earth. (laughs) I had no anxiety on Sunday because I was saving all the energy for my anxiety for when I was gonna die in the plane crash on Monday. And I was worried and fearful, and it kept me up two nights in a row. What's this going to be like? This is a brand new experience for me. I don't really know what to expect. I don't know what's going to happen. And so there was a lot of nervousness and anxiety and fear. I was scared. I wasn't necessarily scared that the plane would go down. I was more so afraid that I would have a panic attack on the flight and flip out so terribly that they would have to land the plane in an emergency, and while they're questioning me later and they ask me what I do for a living and I say, I'm a pastor. That <laughs> now someone's doubting whether or not Jesus is real because a pastor flips out on a plane because he's afraid he's going to die. That's what my fear was. <laughs> and, and, and doesn't a fear of death drive all of us? A, a worry and a fear of, of what's coming? But I, I discovered a, a greater fear than the fear of death when I was, for me, while I was on this plane. And it it kind of began to grow when a couple days before the flight, Pastor Jeff said to me, Joe, when you get up in the sky and you're on that plane and you realize this isn't that big of a deal, the whole world is gonna open up to you. And I smiled and I'm like, yeah, thanks, Jeff. And on the inside, I'm like, shut up. Dude, come on, this is my end, okay? This is the end of me. And can I tell you that when I was up in the sky, and realized that everything was going to be okay, the whole world opened up to me. I'm looking for excuses to get on an airplane. Anybody wanna go to Chick-fil-A in Springfield? Let's book a flight and go. (laughs) It's, It's so easy and so great. And what I found was that greater than my fear of dying on a plane crash was my fear of actually living. There's so much to be had of life that our fears keep us from from going after. Our fears keep us from doing. Our fears keep us from saying yes to because we don't know what it's going to look like. We don't know how difficult it's going to be. What if I panic? What if I freak out? What will other people think when I do it? And it can be so scary and so difficult. And we hedge our lives to keep ourselves alive because of the fear of death. But I wonder how many of us continually run away from the fear of actually living. And if we would just do the thing and trust God, who knows what kind of life we find on the other end of it? Who knows what kind of experience we find on the in, end of it? I can say this, I bet we'll trust God more on the other side of it. I'll bet we'll get a better understanding of how much he loves us and how much he takes care of us, I have learned that God can indeed be trusted when I'm scared. I've also learned that God can be trusted when I'm stingy. This woman, she says to Elijah, when he's like, will you bring me some bread? Verse 12, she says to him, I have nothing. I have nothing to give you. I have nothing for you. How often I have Held tightly onto my money, my resources, and my time because I didn't think I had enough of it. And what I failed to understand is that it all belongs to God, anyway. And if it's all His anyway, then if He needs me to have more of whatever it is, He'll make sure that that happens. Now, something we don't discuss here a lot as at Renaissance is the the concept of something the Bible calls tithing. It's It's a principle that is followed in every Christian church in the world, and it's this idea that that we take a tithe, or 10%, that's what the tithe is, 10% of what we've earned and give it to God. Now, that looks different for many people. The easiest way to give that money to God is to give it to the church because we know that the church we're a part of is is doing ministry on God's behalf. So that's the easiest way to do that. But for the longest time, I, my understanding of the tithe was that that 10%, that belongs to God. So before I do anything else, I've got to take that 10% and give it to him Right away, I don't even want to hang on to it because I'll end up spending it. So give God his 10%, and then I can go back to my 90% and do whatever I want with that 90%. But what I learned, what I believe is true, is that this 90% that I thought was mine is still 100% his. And so when I hang on to it as though it's mine, what I do is compartmentalize my resources and give some of them to God and say, you have to stay out of the rest of this because it's mine. And if I'm willing to do that with my money, I'm willing to do that in any area of my life because if we're honest, the bottom line drives everything, doesn't it? This is why this is such an important principle for us to understand. This is why God speaks about it in the Bible. It's it's not because the church needs money. It's not because God needs money. It's because God wants our hearts and what we do with our money is an incredible thermometer as to what God is doing with our heart. Whether or not I can trust him with all of who, I The Bible tells us that God lays these principles out for us. Every rule, every command, everything that's in the Bible that he gives us to do is ultimately for our good. He tells us nothing. He tells us to do nothing that is harmful to us ultimately. Everything is for his glory, for our good. So much so that the Bible says God loves us. Someone who can give cheerfully. He loves it when we can cheerfully and joyfully give to him and say, this isn't mine, this is yours. Lord, I want you to have it, and I'm glad that you're having it because I know it's all yours. Anyway, the Bible says God loves a cheerful giver. Now, even though God loves a cheerful giver, I want you to know that that we'll still take your money if you're a grouch. So... (laughs) Don't let that stop you. But God does all of these things for our good. And what we find is if we let go of that, which for most of us, I would guess, is one of the most precious things to us, our resources. If we would actually turn it over to him and say, 100% of it is yours, so what do you want me to do with it? If we come to him that way, we'll find ourselves able to trust him in so much more in our lives. And so much more because we'll see him take care of us. Now, now I'm not suggesting that we'll always have everything we want. I don't believe the Bible suggests that anywhere. I'm not suggesting that we'll always have everything we think we need I'm not suggesting that you take all of your money and give it to the next televangelist who suggests that you do so. What I'm suggesting is God, God promises we'll have all that we need. He certainly does when he says in verse 16, the jar of oil was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord. Just as God said, she had everything she needed, but, but her needs are different from our needs. She needed food. She needed bread. We need what the Bible calls the bread of life, Jesus. It's Jesus is what we need. So so there may be times where I don't have as much as I want. There may be times where I'm questioning if God even sees that I don't have everything I think I need, but at the end of every day, I can look back and say, I still have this one thing, Jesus. And he's all that matters. That's why this all matters to him. Because if we can give everything over to him, we'll see that he is more precious than anything at all. And if we know that to be true, we can trust him in every area. So out of all the things I've learned about who God is, what is that one thing I'd love to tell Renaissance? It's this, that God is trustworthy. He's trustworthy. We can count on him, we can depend on him, we can bank on him, we can trust him at all times. I didn't finish my plane story earlier, and I'll do that now. I actually did arrive back safely and survived. I hoped there would be more applause at that, but... (laughs) But I survived the plane ride and everything was okay. And when I got on the plane, I felt this nervousness as I'm walking through the gate for the first time. And I get on the plane and I realize that it's actually much smaller than I imagined in my mind. And I go and I sit down in an aisle seat. Thank God I got an aisle seat. And while I'm there, I get up into the sky and all of a sudden I realize how great I feel about this experience. I'm not freaking out at all. I have an incredible piece that's overwhelming me, and I got to tell you, both of these flights to Seattle and back from Seattle were very bumpy. Four-hour flight, two hours, the pilot said, flight attendants, sit down. Incredibly bumpy. I asked someone later, was that characteristic for how bumpy a flight usually is? And they said, oh no, this was a bumpy flight. But I didn't realize how bumpy it was, because I had done so much research, educating myself, hours and hours reading up on what does it feel like to be in the air? What is the science behind what gets an airplane off of the ground? (laughs) What does turbulence feel like? What is turbulence? What causes it? I talked to friends. I went to lunches to say, what does it feel like to be on an airplane? What's turbulence feel like? Do you ever get sick? All of these questions. And so when I'm sitting on the plane, I feel like I knew exactly what was going on because I've already done this. 20 times in my mind after all I'd read about it. I had such an incredible peace and there's one moment where the plane rocks and I looked out the window and I I could swear I saw the wing just like tilting up like this all the way up and down. (laughs) And after gripping the seat because I thought I was going to vomit and gaining my composure, I felt an incredible calm because I knew that the captain was a capable pilot. If you remember the story of the gentleman named Sully who landed the plane on the river, they're all cut from that same cloth. <laughs> they're all trained to think several steps ahead. They're all trained to react quickly to situations that come along. So I just had this understanding, this peace that surpassed my understanding that the pilot of the craft was going to keep me safe, that he or she knew what they were doing and there's nothing I can do about it either way. And so I sat back and I rocked around (laughs) and felt very comfortable. And I would suggest that if we too are going to know that we can trust God in anything that we go through, we need to educate ourselves on his trustworthiness. We can go to the Bible And we'll certainly read stories about Elijah and the nation of Israel. We'll we'll read stories all throughout the Bible of how God is taking care of people, of how trustworthy he really is. We can turn to one another and say, tell me about a time where you didn't know what was gonna happen, but God took care of you in the midst of it. But most of us, like myself, will probably learn from our experiences, having to trust God on our own. And so whatever that is, maybe you're scared, just go do the thing, okay? It's not anything. It's like if God is leading you to go do something, go do the thing. If you're scared to, to go talk to your neighbor whose name you don't even know yet, though you've lived next to them for six years, just go do that thing. If you're scared to call a cousin who's sick and you don't know what to say to him, but you know that it would be great for them to hear your voice, go call them. Go do the thing. And, and, and maybe for those of you in the room, those of us in the room who are stingy, maybe we need to give and ask God what it would be. Ask God to show us that everything we own, everything we have belongs to him. There's nothing that we own that is ours. All of our resources, all of our time, all of our relationships, they belong to Jesus. The band is going to return in a moment, and when they do, we'll have an opportunity to do those very things, to pray and ask God to show us what he would want us to do. Maybe some of us need to go do the thing. Maybe some of us need to give, but all of us need to learn how we can trust him and how we can depend upon him. When they return, there, there will be time for us to stand and sing together. And as we're singing together and focusing on Jesus, worshiping Jesus, ask him to show us what is it that he wants us to let go of and let him have, because there's no safer place for any of that to be. Would you pray with me? Lord, we are so thankful that you take such good care of us. We're so thankful that your eyes are always on us. Your hands are always stretched out to us. You're always thinking about us. Your love for us is so great and so strong. There's nothing you won't do to show us how much you care for us. Lord, I pray for those of us today who are wondering about that and struggling with it and and questioning, where are you at? I pray that you would would show us that you're right here. You haven't forgotten, that you do care, that you love us immensely. I thank you that the Bible tells us that the thing that drives the fear out of our lives is your perfect love. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand your perfect love. Let all of our distrust fall away. We thank you for that, Lord, and we love you. In Jesus' name,
0: amen. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Together we can reach the heart of Decatur. And if you'd like to be a part of that, go to rendecatur.org backslash give and make a commitment to be a part of showing the people of the city of Decatur the truth of Jesus and how much he loves them.